0: Let's turn in our Bibles to Judges chapter 12. Judges chapter 12. Let's hear the word of God. The men of Ephraim were called to arms. They crossed the Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. When I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim, The men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? When they said no, they said to him, Then say, Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. After him, Ibsen of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. He gave in marriage outside his clan and 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. And Ibsen died and was buried in Bethlehem. And after him, Elon, the Zebulite, judged Israel, and he judged Israel 10 years. Then Elon died and was buried in in the land of Zebulun. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Perithonite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the parenthite, died and was buried at Pirathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. This is the word of the Lord. We were captivated as well as disturbed to see, weren't we, the the damage, the scale of the damage done in Turkey and Syria after the earthquakes. And we saw in the devastation those who risked their lives and gave of their time and every energy to pull at the concrete, to try and move it, to discover those who were trapped and to deliver them and to rescue them and to bring them to safety. It was a great act of deliverance and rescue. We can't imagine any of those people who'd been trapped down there, perhaps for several hours, or in other cases for several days. We can't imagine any of those people turning around to those who'd been their rescuer and questioning them or attacking them or saying, I'd like to kill you. We can't even imagine that, can we? But that really is a kind of picture of what's happening here in this Chapter that we're looking at today. Uh, Jephthah, the judge of Israel, has accomplished a great salvation. Now, when we use the words salvation, rescue, deliverance, and church, we are talking about a particular rescue, deliverance, and salvation. You know that. A great liberation that has occurred, that has been accomplished not by human agency, but by divine initiative. And intervention. The book of the Judges is a book of salvation events. There are kind of mini salvations, but nonetheless, they're determined and delivered by God using human instruments. These mini salvations of Israel from her oppressors are meant to point us forward to that greatest rescue mission of all, when God assumes a human nature through which He comes alongside us acts for us and delivers us salvation. He rescues us from sin and Satan and death and judgment all by means of his own suffering on the cross, his torn flesh, his outpoured blood in the violent and sacrificial death that we remember and represent when we come around this Lord's table today. Jephthah had rescued all Israel from the oppression and occupation of a foreign power. But not everybody in Israel was happy. So that's where the the chapter starts. The chapter starts with Ephraim. The men of Ephraim mobilized. They crossed the Jordan, making for Zaphon, and said to Jephthah, why did you go to fight the Ammonites without asking us to go with you? We shall burn you and your house. These men are not backward they're coming forward. They say what they mean, and they mean what they say. Remember that Ephraim, though, is one of the tribes of Israel. It belongs to Israel proper. Therefore, it's, one of the, it, it's within the covenant of God with Israel. In fact, Ephraim is one of the premier tribes among the ten northern tribes of Israel. Gideon was just a minor tribe. In fact, it was a mixed tribe made up of people of Manasseh and Gad, originals in the sons of Jacob. These people were half-castes. They were looked down on by the upper class Israelites, the Ephraimites, and the people of Judah. And it's Ephraim's arrogance that goes to its very core. It's as if they're saying... What business did you, Jephthah, I mean, your family background is dodgy. Your mother was a prostitute. You're not the kind of fellow that should be leading the charge representing Israel. And your tribe, the Gilead people, these these are the lowest form of life within Israel. How do people like you get it into your head that you can take on the enemy single-handedly and to cap it all, defeat the enemy decisively. The salvation that was accomplished from their enemies was handed to these Ephraimites on a plate. They had freedom from oppression. And yet here they are complaining, turning on their Savior, and leader, we shall burn you and your house. They're there to kill him. And you notice Jephro's response to them. He says to them, My people and I had a bit of conflict with the Ammonites. What he doesn't say is, the Ammonites were a threat to everybody in Israel, but here we are, we're at the, we're at the tip of the spear here. We're right next door to the Ammonites. They come for us first before they get anywhere near you. We had a conflict with the Ammonites, so I called for you. Ephraim, you did not deliver me from their power, so I took my life in my own hands and crossed over to the Ammonites. And here's the punchline it wasn't me that won the battle, and it wasn't Gilead that defeated the Ammonites, it was the Lord who handed them over to me. In other words, Jephthah witnesses a good confession. He gives God the glory for being the actual savior of his people. And if God is the actual savior of his people and the Ephraimites are against Gilead for their part in the act of salvation, that puts the Ephraimites at odds with God. That's the punchline of the story. Now, we know a little bit about the Ephraimites. Uh, their, reaction, their reactions, of course, we can see this. Somebody has a guilty conscience. Uh, their, their guilt feeling turns to anger and jealousy, and they punch back rather than accept responsibility. They imagine themselves to be the aggrieved party. They become the victim. They make themselves the victim. And it was they who had done the wrong thing by refusing to help their people, which was their duty before God. Churches churches too should help other churches when they're in need. The Israel of God must help the Israel of God wherever it finds itself in the world. It may be impoverished, it may be being persecuted, it may need material help, or it may need personnel help in evangelism, and one church should help another church. When we listen to Jephthah, we gather that he needed help and you can ad- identify with him. He needed help against these enemies. Sometimes you need help. And it's at those times that you are very aware that your fellow believers don't come to your aid. They fail you. When a church, for example, is speaking truth to power, perhaps taking a principal stand on basic doctrine or on biblical ethics that church can often find other churches more reluctant to come publicly out into the open and say what we really believe and what we really think. They play, as it were, the long game. And instead of coming to the aid of those who are on the tip of the spear in terms of witness to the world, they are strangely silent. John Stott wrote a book about that once, which he called Our Guilty silence. So what should we do in such circumstances? Well, what does uh, Jephthah do? Nobody's coming to help him. What does he do? He goes on alone. He goes out alone in the grace that God supplies him. He trusts in the Lord, and he goes out believing that God will be a friend to truth, a friend to truth. One of the great preachers of all time is uh, a man called Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He was a Baptist preacher. You'll forgive him for that. Uh, And uh, during in the 19th century, the Baptist Union of Great Britain was uh, a kind of uh, umbrella organization for all the Baptist churches in England. And it soon became apparent in the middle of the 19th century that the Baptist Union was departing from Scripture. And Spurgeon in his preaching pointed this out. In his preaching and his writing pointed this out. He was the most famous Christian in the world at that time. And the most famous preacher at that time. And he was pilloried in the Christian press and in the secular press. And he was stating this. He was arguing that separation from a group like the Baptist Union. Separation from such as are conniving fundamental error, and who are withholding the full word of God, the bread of God, the bread of life from perishing souls, to separate from that kind of organization is not schism. It is only what truth and conscience and God require of those who would be found faithful. That controversy was called the downgrade Controversy. It just about killed, in fact, probably did kill Spurgeon in the end. He was parodied, ridiculed for it. And at that time, in that controversy, what was demonstrated was a readiness on the part of most ministers to justify their lack of firm action on the grounds that the greater good could be gained. By having a more accommodating policy. The Chicago standard. Commenting on what was going on in England. Said better to resist all this drift. So far as it exists. Raising a question mark about it. So far as it exists. When we are face to face with it. Not from a distance. In other words. Translate that into 20th century talk. Don't say anything about it on Twitter until you have met with all the persons individually and talked to them, first of all. Of course, the reason you would respond in Twitter is probably because they've already put their positions on Twitter or on Facebook or TikTok or wherever it is they put them. They've already expressed their views. Should you be silent about expressing the truth? That was the big question that Spurgeon faced. And Spurgeon was used to such arguments and said, it is never right to do a little wrong to obtain the greatest possible good. Your duty is to do the right and leave the consequences with God. He himself said, I'm happy for my name to be crunched, stepped down into the dust. But the more distant future will vindicate me. And so it did, eventually. Now Jephthah acted in this kind of spirit. Rejected by the others, nobody's coming to his aid. He gets on and he does his duty to God. And God gives him victory. Even if God had not given him victory, it would still have been the right thing to do. And in this Jephthah Jephthah is like the Lord Jesus... Jephthah says that he put himself in harm's way. Jesus put himself in harm's way. But not only that, Jesus actually gave up his life altogether. He not only risked his life for us, he sacrificed his life for us. He came into the world to give his life as a ransom for many. Jephthah's risk-taking and his actions secured the temporary salvation of Israel... Our Savior, by his death in our place, is the foundation of the good news, the basis of the Christian faith. In his body, torn by nails and spear, in the shedding of his blood, the token of his violent and sacrificial death, he took himself, on himself, the sanctions of the law as our substitute and our representative He takes the place of all of God's elect, his faithful people, those who believe in him. He triumphs over sin and death and demonstrates the love of God for you and for me. God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jephthah risked his life without the help of the Ephraimites. Jesus gave his life quite alone, There was none to help. He himself passed over into that midday midnight where he proved to be victorious over Satan and all his works. An enemy infinitely more formidable than the Ammonites were to Jephthah. The Lord delivered them into Jephthah's hand. Christ delivered a mighty victory at Calvary for every one of his people. And so we can say that every tribe, including Ephraim, every tribe in Israel, benefited from Jephthah's victory. And yet, what are these men doing? They're attacking him. God so loved the world, which is why he gave his only begotten son. The benefits of his self-giving are out of this world. They are eternal life. These Ephraimites showed ingratitude for the salvation that Jephthah had accomplished. They came, you notice, to attack him, the very one who'd won the victory. They threatened his life. And there are those, both in and outside of the church, in a sense, who disregard all that Jesus came to do, even though they affirm it, they believe in it, they don't understand it. They, they, they have a kind of, they speak the words, but when it comes to action, they deny him. They're they hostile to Christ. People outside in the, church, in the world, they are, they're hostile to Jesus. He's the savior of the world. He has done what divine love could do to make salvation possible and available in such a way that it's free at the point of delivery. He does all the paying of the costs. And yet every day and everywhere, people spurn him, reject him, use his name as a curse word. And if you watch British television over and over and over and over again, we are without excuse. Yet consider the overtures of love and kindness he offers to you and to me. God says to Israel, he says to us, turn to me, turn to me and be saved. Why? Why will you die? Why will you die? That is the penalty of sin. Why will you die and bear the penalty of sin? You don't have to. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Well, in verse 4, the Savior becomes the judge. Jephra comes with his uh, army in great, against greater odds He's defended the salvation of he's accomplished the salvation of Israel. He now defends it. Remember, he has saved Israel as a whole. The Ephraimites are unhappy, but but they're benefiting from the fact that the Ammonites are no longer a threat. And this is part of their this is part of their modus operandi. Go back to chapter one. There it's the tribe of Judah that takes on itself to defend Israel under Othniel, the first judge who rids Israel of her enemies. And on that occasion, the, the, the people of Judah asked the people of Ephraim to come and join them in resisting the enemy. But Ephraim didn't turn up then either. Back in chapter 1, verse 29, at that time, Ephraim failed to drive out the Canaanites who were living in Giza. And so the Canaanites have lived among them in Giza. In other words, why did they not come to the rescue of Israel? Because they were absolutely in love with the gods and the idols of the Canaanite religion. They were in Israel, they belonged to Israel, but they weren't worshipping Israel's God. Or they were worshipping Israel's God alongside worshipping these Canaanite gods and making their child sacrifices to these Canaanite gods. They had allowed an evil religion to be superimposed upon the religion of God, and they'd embraced it enthusiastically. By the time you get to the end of the Old Testament scripture, in Hosea's day, the word of the Lord declares this, Ephraim, Is attached to idols glued to idols you can't separate their hand or pull their hand away from the idols of the nations around them and at that point Judah as well as Ephraim are consulting their wooden idols their divining rods to inform them, they're sacrificing on the mountaintops and here's the crucial thing they do not know the Lord. They're part of the corporate Israel of God, but they do not know the Lord. The, Ephra- the Ephraimites belong to Israel. They have a shared tradition, same deposit of truth, a shared profession. They're part of the church. But they're compromising spiritually. They're actually opposed to God's salvation and want to kill God's Savior. These people represent the opposition that Christ faces from within the covenant community itself. Now remember, in this case, Israel is a a political and civics entity as well as being a church. In resisting the lawfully appointed leader, wanting to kill the the lawfully appointed leader who is Jephthah, and wanting to kill him, they are in fact resisting God, who put him in that position. And so therefore Jephthah has no other option than to resist them by force of arms, because it's a political entity, a, a nation state. And God gives him the victory. Now, we don't do that today. We don't do that today. We need to read read this story as we should always do with the rule of faith, which we have recited together in the Apostles' Creed, and through the Christian lens of the New Testament Scripture. The Israel of God today is not a civic society. It does not have an army. Jesus made it very clear to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my people would fight. But they don't fight. We don't make war against apostate Christians. We don't make war among non-Christian people. We certainly don't use swords or guns or bombs to do it. Jesus delivered this lesson to Simon Peter. When he drew his sword, you remember, and he cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. Jesus glued the ear back on. No, put the ear back on. And when they came to arrest him, the church will invariably find within her gates people who behave badly, who embrace false teaching, who adopt worldly mores, who seek to destroy the character, at least the reputation. Or the joy of God's faithful people. I mean, the Apostle John puts it like this We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. You, you may not murder your brother or your sister, but you can destroy them. You can destroy their peace. You can de- destroy their joy in the Holy Ghost. You can de- destroy their reputation. If you're not careful. Now, how does God usually deal with these homegrown rebels? Well, listen to how it's stated in Hosea again. God says, What am I going to do with you, Ephraim? You love to like your love is like the morning mist and like the early dew that vanishes when the sun rises. This is why I have sent My prophets to cut you down. I have killed them with the words from my mouth. My judgment strikes like lightning, for I desire faithful love and not sacrifice. By the time of Hosea, the kind of physical battle that you see here in chapter 12 has now transformed into a spiritual battle where what God does is is instead of sending an army to defeat those who have gone wrong, he sends the prophets. Their weapon is the Word of God. It's the Word of God that kills them. It's the Word of God that brings them down. It's the Word of God that refines them, that breaks them, that brings them to repentance or condemns them. When the Apostle Paul is writing what we call Second Corinthians, he reminds the church, that church that was broken in two with all kinds of issues. He reminds them, we are speaking in Christ. That is we as the apostles. Speaking in Christ, and everything dear friends, is for building you up. That's, the, that's, that's good. That's a good thing. But, there was serious disunity in the church. Stemming from among other things. From puffings up. The old translation puts it. I just thought I'd tell you that. Because I think it's quite funny. Puffings up. Meaning arrogance. People getting puffed up with them, their own importance. And disturbances or disorder. Or to put it in the language of uh, Peter Martyr Vermigli, There was sedition in the church. There were those who had never been appointed, called, appointed, qualified, ordained, who were gathering people together without any warrant, who were defending the people they'd gathered together from any kind of church discipline. They were dividing the body. They were creating parties within the church, provoking fights between the members of the church. We know that in some of the churches there were antinomians. Those who thought that in the church we should be governed by the, the ethics and the morals that were considered right by society at large. Still have people like that today. They want the church to conform their ethics and their morals to what is acceptable or desired by society at large. And if you don't do that, if you don't do that, then you're not being relevant You're not being culturally sensitive. You're not being Christian enough. Or on the other hand, there's legalism. There are those who take legitimate things that they find in the Bible, but then they want to overlay them with their opinions. So when they tell you to do one thing, they tell you how that should be done. When the Bible doesn't tell you how it should be done, it leaves a lot lot of that thing to the Christian mind, the Christian liberty, the liberty of the Christian man or woman. So much of the principles of of how you live the Christian life in the New Testament are left to you to work out between you and God using the principles you find in Scripture. It's not the business of the church to tell you where you should shop. Or what kind of suit you should wear. Although somebody told me a tweed, tweed suit is too posh. <laughs> I was really annoyed at that. <laughs> In Scotland, it's the basic thing. Anyway, but, but we, may, we make rules up for one another. When we make rules up for one another, what are we doing? We're, we're piling burden upon burden upon burden upon people. We take away the joy of the Lord. We take away their responsibility to, to work it out for themselves. We become bullies. St. Augustine in De Civitate Dei, the city of God puts it like this. He quotes from Cicero. The two hands of a people as a people. That one, they agree with the same laws of things divine and humane. And two, they have a communion in public life. Those who rise up against those things, in other words, those who attack the things that we share, the laws of things divine and humane, in other words, what the ethics, the doctrines that we share as a church, in the communion that we have, in the fellowship that we have with one another, whoever rises up against that is being seditious. If they're attacking How we do things, if they attack the liturgy or they attack the doctrine that we preach or they attack how you live your Christian life in the world, then what they're doing is they're being seditious. And the church has to deal with this decisively, not with conventional weapons, of course, but with spiritual weapons, principally the weapon of the word of God, I like this at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. uh, Paul's been talking about all this stuff that's going on there and and the church of Corinth is breaking apart because of these factions within the church, tearing at one another, criticizing one another. And Paul says to the church, he writes to them, I am ready to come to you in the sight of God, we are speaking in Christ. I fear that when I come to you, I will not find you to be what I want, and you may not find me to be what you want. That's a bit threatening, isn't it? He means that. If I come again, I will not be lenient. Since you seek proof of Christ speaking in me, He is not weak in dealing with you, but powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. We also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by God's powers. What he's saying is, we come in the fullness of the gospel of the power of Jesus Christ. The errors and the evils of the Corinthian church don't need to be covered up, explained away, or rebranded. Or seen as a kind of progressive project or whatever kind of project. Conservative or a progressive project for the church. This is spiritual warfare, Paul says. The conflict that's already going on in the heavenlies has spilled over into the church. Therefore it needs to be dealt with in a spiritual manner. All Christ's enemies, whether they're in the heavenly realms or on earth, have to be made the footstool for Christ. Paul, when he's writing to Timothy, talks about a day when people will not endure sound doctrine. He talks about other people who argue with the teaching that promotes godliness. There are still others who are conceited and understanding nothing, but have an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. They're always trying to trip you up with their words. And Paul says, these are those who depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods. Both things that God created to be received with that gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. He goes on to say, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving since it is sanctified by the word of God and by prayer tell that to the people who want to pile their opinions on you what are the weapons then of our warfare let the blessed paul teach us he goes on to say this going back to second corinthians chapter 10 although we live in the flesh we don't wage war according to the flesh since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but powerful through God for the pulling down of strongholds, we demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. We take captives. Yes, it's a war. We take captives. What do we take captive? We take every thought captive to obey Christ. Jephthah's action against. Ephraim was physical. Our battle against the devil's lies is by speaking the truth, wielding the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. By the proclamation of the full counsel of God, not just a little bit of it, but the whole counsel of God, both Christ and the church will be victorious in the end. What was it in the end that told the difference between the Ephraimites and and the Gideonites. In the end, it was their speech. Uh, the uh, Jephthah devises this little password, Shibboleth. But the Ephraimites, even though they belong to the same country, couldn't say it the way that the Gideonites could say it. The Gileadites could say it. It's like somebody being born and brought up in the south of England trying to pronounce some of the Scottish words properly. They never can do it. They can never do it. They just don't have the ability to do it. Similarly here. The content of your heart is very often recognizable by the content of your speech there is a right and a wrong way to talk about the Holy Trinity. There is a right and a wrong way to describe the incarnation of Christ. There is a right and a wrong way to talk about salvation. There's a right and a wrong way to talk about how we need to live for God in the world without transgressing over uh, over into antinomianism, no law or legalism more than the Bible gives of law. what we see here is the tearing apart of a church, the tearing apart of Israel. It's already beginning to tear here, and it will go on and on and on until the northern ten tribes and the southern two tribes separate entirely, and the northern ten tribes disappear from history. Well, the chapter ends with this uncomfortable summary. We have Jephthah. And he doesn't live very long. He judged Israel for six years. We have Ibzan of Bethlehem, not the Bethlehem you're thinking of, another Bethlehem altogether. And he judged Israel for seven years. We have Elon, not Elon Musk. Elon you knew that was coming judged Israel for 10 years. We have Abdon, who judged Israel. Eight years, 30 years they had. Nothing remarkable happened. What isn't said is Israel did not have any rest. That's not said. But over those 30 years, these faithful men did their part. They honor God, they serve His people. And you notice the repetition of the word Israel. In other words, even though Israel's been torn apart, the Ephraimites are willing to kill the Savior, kill the, the man of Gilead, the the rupture is there, but Israel in the mind of God is still His purpose. He's going to preserve His Israel, and one after another, these men who've done their duty dies. But our Savior, our Savior, was dead and is alive forevermore. Our Savior reigns in the power of an endless life. Our Savior has brought life and immortality to light in the gospel. Our Savior has succeeded and triumphed over the powers of hell and over the evils of our own hearts. And His salvation is secure for the whole Israel of God, for all the church of God, the ransomed church of God, until we are safely home in glory. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that if we are seeking you today, that we would find you, that we would find you in this great good news of the gospel. And we pray that you, Lord, would take your word. And if we are... If we're needing a harsh word, Lord, that you deliver that to us. If we're needing a word of comfort, that you would use your word to comfort us. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.